0: This week on Dig Me Out With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Manici Hey
1: everyone, this week we sat down and talked with Marco DeSantis of the band Sugar Colt He's also played with bands such as the Ataris, Bad Astronaut, Nerf Herder, and the Swinging Udders. He's run an independent label. He's been a writer for music magazines, hosted radio shows, promoted concerts, been a DJ, uh, and at the Musicians Institute, he's a teacher and mentor for the Artist Development Department. Let's go to the interview.
2: weird we're like in three different states yeah but uh i don't know suppose we're unified by coffee and um and and the theme of your podcast is as i understand it is is um more or less the 90s or or what's going on
1: yeah We have to speed. it's uh 90s centric we try to we try to um you know revisit albums that maybe didn't get as much uh publicity is maybe they deserved or or that people suggest and say hey you, you guys should check this one out because i think that this was you know something that people ignored or what have you and then we kind of also dive into some some broader topics um we do you know like um i think the one that caught your attention is what we did a, a roundtable discussion on los angeles in the 90s and just sort of digging into the music oh, yeah, scene that's right yeah, and we've done that for a couple different cities. We've done Chicago and we've done Boston where we kind of like just talked to people who were there at that time and you know what where were they going to see bands and and how were they finding out about bands? What were the radio stations like and the local newspapers and the record stores and and just kind of getting a feel for like the the scenes in different cities. So in that case we do like right. kind of a broader um approach to
2: the to the show. That's so, cool. Well, I mean, you know, I can I can go in a, in any direction you want, you know. So, I mean, I was I was certainly around in the '90s. Um, you know, um, the the reason anybody probably knows of me is is probably from the band Sugar Cult that I actually started with some friends in Santa Barbara, which is not far from LA, um, and we started the band in well, arguably '98, '99, and. Um, you know, and the band was influenced by, I mean, the funny thing is like the way the band came together, it was, uh, it was like a trio. It was our singer, Tim and original drummer, Ben. And then this guy, Aaron playing bass and, uh, and they had played, um, as local support, um, opening for see like both of our bands at the time. I was, I was in this sort of like on again, off again project with some guys, um called the lap dancers another local band and then they had they were um another band so so basically like bands would come through santa Barbara's was kind of considered almost like a you know like secondary market like a little pit stop on your way to your your big show in la after playing your big show in san francisco so like i kind of grew up in the town that was like that we got we sort of got the scraps if we were lucky like if you know if bands really wanted to um you know, get it, pick up an extra night on their way to LA. So, um, so there was a band coming through town and they needed local support. And so they threw our band on because we knew like the girl who ran the club and then they threw on this other band and I'd never heard of them before. And I was pretty involved in the Santa Barbara music scene. Like I, I literally like hosted a local music radio show. I wrote for the local weekly rag I uh, worked at the record shop. I did, you know, I was just like the big fish in a small pond and this new, this other band on the bill, I just assumed they were a touring band and I watched them and there was nobody there to see them. And literally it was like this singer who was super charming and had really good melodies. And then he's like this kind of just ragtag rhythm section. And I was like, what the fuck? And I went up to the guy afterwards. I was like, what's your deal? You know? And he's like, oh, it's actually, we, uh, this was our first show ever. Like we literally just somehow weaseled our way on this show because we like the band, the headlining band and uh, they needed a local support like through some random connection. So we were like bonding because we were both kind of wearing similar outfits and we were um, <laughs> both like commiserate or not commiserating, but we were both kind of like um, bonding over the fact that like we both basically took that gig so we could get into the show for free because it was a band that we loved called Super Drag. Do you remember Superdrag from the '90s? Uh, We are quite familiar.
1: Yeah, John Davis has been on the show a couple times to talk about the Lisa Memory albums that he's made. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, like they were like they were our spirit animals, uh, to put Mm -hmm. it in in, like horrible millennial terms. But like (laughs) Superdrag was like they were. They don't realize. I mean, it's funny because we actually met them like in you know subsequent years. And we kind of like tried to explain to them like how much they meant to sugar cult, you know. And, you know, basically all we ever did was with sugar, with well, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like tripping over myself because I probably drank too much coffee. But, uh, <laughs> follow me here. So we both were the like random, you know, local support that got thrown on a super drag show on their Head Trip and Every Key tour, which in my opinion is one of the best records ever made. Um, but in the uh, in the record company's opinion was a commercial flop compared to the previous album that had like who sucked out the feeling on it right Mm -hmm. um so yeah so we were the band opening you know first show ever by sugar Cult before i was in the band was they were a trio and then this other band that i was in we both took the show so we could basically get into the show for free it was kind of like you know hey can you put us on the guest list for super drag because we're broke musicians. Um, no, I can't put you on the guest list, but Hot about bands open for Superdrag because they need local support because they're not touring with anybody, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So that's like how we got into the show by opening for them. And then we ended up, you know, bonding mm-hmm. over like, oh, you guys like Superdrag too. So then you know? why? And me and the singer, him, um, singer, if you recall, we just started like, we exchanged numbers and we started like talking on the phone. And, um, I mean, it's a very nineties relationship, like, talking on the phone really late, making each other mix, not mix tapes, but probably, maybe mix tapes at that point, maybe mix CDs. I can't remember. What would you do in, like, 1998, 99? Mix CDs? I I would have been CDs by then. Yeah, Yeah, burning CDs. Yeah, Yeah, you're you're trying to... Yeah. Like, not unlike when you're trying to, like, not unlike when you're, like, you know, when you just meet some girl, and you're like, oh, I can't believe you've never heard that fucking record, and you're trying to, like, turn it on to all your music before you finally Mm -hmm. just surrender and realize that She's not going to fucking buy your whole rock and roll trip. And, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but usually girls are like, okay, you're fucking crazy. You know way too much shit about music. And I just want to, like, listen to Depeche Mode and get on with my life. So shut up, you know? But uh, anyway, so, like, we would make each other these mix. Well, the funny thing about Tim was, like, I was, like, talking to him as though he was, as though he had a record collection. 'Cause I was kind of a music nerd, I had a big record collection, I was into all kinds of shit. And I assumed from watching his, you know, twenty minute set that he was pulled up on a lot of cool shit. And it turned out that he was like, Yeah, dude, I actually just grew up listening to like the fucking radio, you know, in the suburbs. I don't even have a record collection. I have a couple greatest hit CDs, you know. Yeah. And he was like into Super Drag, probably because of their hit song on the radio. You know, he was into Elvis Costello which, like, scored a lot of points for me. Uh, But then I was like, oh, you're into Elvis Costello? Fuck, like, this year's model, right? And he's like, I don't know, dude, I have, like, Elvis Costello's greatest hits. You know? (laughs) So we had this weird dynamic where, like, he was, like, irreverent and just, like, into hit songs and into being a songwriter. And I was, like, kind of, like, a super nerd with a big record collection into, like, finding used record stores all the time and, like, buying weird shit and listening to fucking Tom Waits and weird shit, right? And so I would try to turn him on to that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, dude, you got to check out Tom Waits. You got to check out Jawbreaker. You got to check out all this fucking shit. And he was like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. Sounds kind of out of tune. Sounds kind of, the recording's not that good. (laughs) You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the best fucking shit in the world. So it was like the irreverent, you know, the irreverent guy who just is concerned with catchy hooks and then the rock and roll romantic who is, covered in dust because he's looking through fucking used record stores all the time right and somehow we decided to like join forces um just as friends and then one day he was on the phone with me he's like fuck dude i i don't have the heart to break it to our bass player because um, i was actually playing bass at the time he's like so but i wish we could be in a band together like it seems like we just see eye to eye about all this shit and i was like well fuck dude i don't know maybe some other time you know and then one day i remember i was on a trip with like on a road trip with a friend of mine and i get like you know this is the 90s too i call and check my messages because we didn't have phones obviously and mm-hmm. i call home to check like my answering machine my voicemail on my answering machine or whatever and um and it's like him asking me if i think i could play guitar because he's decided that he thinks the band should be four-piece with a guitar with a lead guitar player and so i call him up and i'm like yeah dude that sounds awesome something sounds like fun um you know, sure, I could try playing guitar because I sort of play guitar. Like every musician, pretty much sort of plays guitar unless they're actually a guitar player. And uh, and I literally in the, in my mind, all I was thinking was I'd already been playing in bands in the '90s for a long time, and for one reason or another, most of them didn't work out. Like either one guy got into drugs and died two weeks before our first record came out, or another band ran out of resources or another band was, you know, populated with people that were just doing it as a hobby. Um, For one reason or another, like I was in, I was like doomed to be in these bands that would almost pull it. And then in the 11th hour, something would happen. Right. And so I was kind of in my mind thinking, okay, I'm kind of done. It's been years. I've been playing a band since I was 14 years old. Um, Maybe it's time to just stop fucking trying so hard and just like, Tuck my shirt in and become a grown-up, you know, or at least look into the possibility of it And so it's like one of those weird like day is darkest before the dawn You know, you never get laid when you're looking to get laid You never find love when you're looking for love It's one of those weird like life lessons Where like I stopped trying and right then is when I ran into this guy And then he asked me to play guitar and I thought well fuck it This will be fun to like learn how to play guitar a little better but I didn't expect anything to really come of it. I just thought this will be kind of fun because I'm pretty much this close to hanging up my cleats anyway. And, and then like all of a sudden I get in the room with those guys and the chemistry just clicked and, um, and I could barely play guitar. I mean, he, he honestly asked me to join the band without even ever hearing me play guitar. Yeah. And, uh, and I just kind of like, take it till you make it. I just kind of did what I could of, with with uh, limited resources. And we, You know, we just had this crazy work ethic and everyone just like fed off each other. And um, I never had been in a band that worked as hard. And then all of a sudden things just started happening, like one thing after another. It was like, oh, we got this opportunity to play this random show. Fuck, let's do it. Oh, my God. From that show, we met somebody who led to another show. And then within like two years, we had a record deal. And we're, you know, in the studio making a record and got on the Warped Tour. And, you know, suddenly it was like a whirlwind into the 2000s right? So, so, sorry, so you, I just realized I'm like talking fucking ears off. So you, <laughs>
3: didn't, you, you didn't start playing guitar until Stopped sugar? Stop
2: me before I get to 2018.
3: <laughs> you didn't start playing guitar until you got the Sugar Cult?
2: Well, I mean, not like seriously. I mean, I, I started out when I was a kid, like on guitar, you know, like my first shitty punk band when I was like, you know, just a kid in the neighborhood and with a friend down the street who had a drum kit in his room, you know, we formed like a, you know, crappy 80 style, like DRI wannabe punk band. Right. And, um, you know, so, and then I had these other friends in town and now I'm going to sound sort of name droppy, but I had these other friends in town that were like, you know, a grade older than me from the other side of town. And, We met just from going to concerts all the time, seeing each other at shows, kind of that weird thing where you do when you're like a young, you know, a young person and then you see like, you you thought you were the kid with the cool t-shirt on that knew about the concert and then you see some other kid who's about your age there and you're like, you sort of have almost this like sports rivalry where it's like, it's like, fuck you, dude. I'm the one who knows about cool shit. And then you see them at like the record store or the music, the guitar shop and, and you're like assessing what they can do. And so you mm. sort of like admire them, but you're also sort of like, you know, they're also kind of your competition, you know, especially in a small town. So eventually like you just learn to be like the Bloods and Crips and you learn to just go, okay, fuck it. We're going to like join forces instead of like, you know, this town's not big enough to have like, you know, two camps. We have to just like join forces. So we would all just kind of eventually get to know each other cause we're all unified by being, you know, weirdos that were obsessed with music in a small beach town. And, um, and so there was these two dudes that were a grade older than me and they had a band across town and they asked me if they could have the bass player of my crappy punk band. Um, cause it was almost like, you know, like some weird, like loyalty vibe. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to take your bass player. I want to ask you if I can have your bass player. Um, and I was like, no, you absolutely can't. I will, I will switch to bass and I'll be your bass player. So I like, m- you know made myself a bass player so that i could play in a band with these two guys because one of the guys was like a virtuoso he was like a child prodigy guitar player and actually he grew up to be the guitarist of the foo fighters he's currently he's been the guitarist of the foo fighters since 1999 chris shiflett oh, okay. so it's kind of a funny story so there's my name drop there's probably the first of a few name drops to come
3: <laughs> drop uh, them man
2: <laughs> so yeah so it was like we were growing up in the same town we were you know you know, we're little kids like having sleepovers and like going to the beach together and like talking about girls and, you know, just being kids. But we happen to be obsessed with music and we all, you know, Chris was lucky enough to have older brothers, which is like at this point, a cliche, like anyone who's got an older brother usually has the, you know, gets to learn about cool shit before their time. So he had like, you know, two older brothers just showing him the way, you know, like, all right, dude, you can look at my record collection, but you got to give me your, you know, Halloween candy or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. All right, dude, you can hang out with us, but you better be able to play this Randy Rhodes guitar solo. And so he <laughs> would just like sit in his room and learn how to play just so he could like get his older brothers to, give him, to let him hang out, you know. right? Um, it's almost like his only hope was to get good at guitar because he had two older brothers that were like shredding musicians and they weren't going to take him seriously unless he could hang you know, so in the end, he's now the one of the Foo Fighters. <laughs> so that's probably a whole other story. That's a separate podcast. You got to get him on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I was, you know, a young little hustler was like, dude, I want to be in a band with that guy and the other guy, Luke, who was really good. Like, I need to be in a band with those guys. So I'm going to switch to bass, like so those guys, and that's what led me to play bass, and then so. You know, other than having a fucking guitar leaning against your wall in your place so you can make up songs or fuck around, you know, of course, I play guitar, but like not like a guitarist plays guitar. Like I didn't identify myself as a guitarist, you know all my all my life i I didn't really it's kind of weird. it's I started on guitar and I kind of like um it's such a weird roundabout thing, like literally the band that I mean, I'm sitting in the house that my band, my band that Sugar Cult's success bought me and it happened when I was this close to giving up pursuing music and on a, on a different instrument than I had played, you know, I hadn't played since I was practically a child. Hmm. So it's a really weird circuitous route. You know, you know, it's, it's one of those, like, you never fucking know how your life's going to turn out. You know, you you take a fucking, Adult Ed class in French, and you write a French novel and that becomes your fucking bestseller after being a novelist your whole fucking life. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know you never know how shit's gonna work out. so
3: so for timeline, the the Ataris are first. You play bass in that band. what what year is that?
2: Oh, yeah. I played in the Ataris too. and that was right? uh, that was <laughs> ninety yeah, that was but the, but you know you have to understand like at the time, it wasn't like I could run around and say, yo, know, I'm in the Ataris, and someone would be like, oh, shit, yeah, man, you're on the fucking guest list. You know, like, back then, the Ataris were held together by duct tape and, right. like, driving the fucking, you know, arguably, um, you know, bound-for-repossession van that was, like, rolling down hills so, that, so as to save gas, you know? It was, like, the Ataris were not the band that had Boys of the Summer on the radio and were, like you know, in Columbia records or whatever, you know, like they were a ramshackle um, operation, which was basically the brainchild of this kid from the Midwest named Chris Rowe. Who's um, I mean, he's got such a fucking great story. Like he literally, he grew up in like the outskirts of somewhere in Indiana, like in some small little town and his um, he would like um, go in his, parent's car with a four track in his room and he would like track his vocals in the car because he didn't want his parents to hear him singing and he somehow recorded this demo of all these songs he had written and you know when you go to shows there's always like some kids trying to give the guys in the bands their cds or, or their demo tapes and hopes the bands will actually listen to it well he went and like drove to cincinnati to a vandals concert gave the vandals his demo tape You know, probably Mm -hmm. expecting them to throw it out the fucking window and do what bands call the 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 record release party. You know, when you get when you hit the highway, (laughs) you take all the (laughs) local band CDs and you throw them out the fucking window at top speed. You call it the record release party. You know, sometimes you'd actually listen to it first before you give it the record release party. Like it was, it was almost a version of smash or trash. You know, what I did because I had a a conscience and a heart is I would get all those things, I would compile them all and put them in a box. And when I had, like, a whole stack of, like, CDs and stuff from hopeful bands, I would, like, put them out on our merch table in another state. Like, if we were, like, you know, I'd compile a bunch of shit from the West Coast and then wait till we played on the East Coast and put them out on a table in hopes that, like, some fans would grab them and listen to them and then, like, email the bands and the bands would, you know, create some fans from another place. Like, that was my romantic idea. Like, oh, I found (laughs) the CD at a Sugar Cold concert and I liked it and I called the band and... You know, who knows? But anyways, the Atari, the kid from the Ataris brought it to the Vandal show when he was literally like a kid. He was probably like 17 or 18. And, uh, and you know, they actually fucking listened to it. And it just so happened that their bass player, Joe Escalani, was just about starting a label called Kung Fu Records. And he was looking for bands. So he, on that tour, as fate would have it, he was actually like collecting every demo he got and listening to it carefully. Cause he was literally trying to scour the country for unknown bands. And he heard that. And it, and Chris, it was basically just Chris Rowe by himself playing everything with like a drum machine. And, uh, and he, but he just called it the Ataris cause he wanted to make it sound like a band. Cause he didn't think anyone would want to sign him if it was just him. And so lo and behold, behold, he literally gets a call from Joe Escalani and you know, he thinks it's his friend playing a joke on him, and he hangs up on him. <laughs> and then he calls him back, and he's like, "No, I'm serious. It's Joe from the Vandals, and I and I like your band. I want to su- check you guys out." And so he had to like scramble and and like f- basically lie to Joe and be like, "Oh, I'd love to play, but like we lost our drummer, so um, you know, we we're, we're trying to find a new drummer." So Joe paired him up with a drummer from Santa Barbara, from my hometown, this guy Derek Florida who used to be in the band Lagwagon, and um and said, well, why don't this guy fill in for you and you can play, and he ended up making that first record, and then Tarek um, like moved out to Indiana to play with this guy because he actually liked the songs. He's like, let's give this band a go, and he was out there for about a month, and he was like, okay, fuck this shit. I'm getting the hell out of Indiana. If you want to stay in the band with me, you can move to Santa Barbara, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Chris literally like put all his shit in a backpack and grabbed his guitar and just like moved to santa barbara on a wing and a prayer like literally had nothing to go on like stayed at some girl's house and i met him the first day he got to santa barbara and he was super outgoing and ambitious and he's just like hey what's up dude uh derek said you're a nice guy and you play bass you want to play uh do you want to you want to play in my band and um we have a record and we have some tour dates coming up and i was like between things so i was like sure let's fucking try it you know so i like learned up the songs it was really hard because chris i don't know if you ever looked at the ataris up close but he plays his guitar upside down
3: oh is it so it's uh is he left, left right handed? He,
2: he plays a right-handed guitar left-handed okay. so he's got the high e string on top and the low e string on the bottom
3: like Jimi hendrix he, he,
2: yeah he's i mean he, <laughs> he's like a he's kind of like a weird like savant type of kid like he he learned to play guitar when he was a child by holding his guitar up to like tv and so the guitar was he didn't figure out that obviously it's like it's on tv so you have to flip it around he would he like held it up to the tv and then matched that and then learned to taught himself to play that way so somehow in his mind it completely makes sense but tried you know trying to learn his songs when him showing you the songs and it's like yeah, everything's upside down. It's so fucking confusing. Wow. Um, so I learned all the songs. We, we did a bunch of, um, shows and it was really fun, but like our drummer was, it had become, uh, it was really sad cause Derek and I had actually grown up in the same neighborhood and knew each other. He was actually Derek. I'm, I'm confusing myself. I must be really confusing you guys. Derek before he was the drummer of Lagwagon, was the bass player in my first punk band in my neighborhood. And, was the bass player that my friends in the other band across town had asked me permission if they could have. And I said no, and that's why I started playing bass. So I forgot mm-hmm. there was that connection, too. Really small town kind of shit here, incestuous small town shit. So somehow, years later, here I am in a band with Derek, but he had picked up a drug habit. We're talking about the 90s here. So he was mm-hmm. strung out. and um, And so I was in a band that had no money. <laughs> We were the opening, opening band. We would get on stage and, you know, play our set and then say, hey, guys, this is our last song. If anyone has a place for us to sleep, you know, come see us at the merch table. And so we were like every night just asking people for like, you know, a, a, a couch to crash on a floor to crash on, you know, whatever, a backyard to camp in. whatever. So we were basically li- like, that's how we were rolling. And um at the same time I'm watching this kid from my neighborhood that I knew when we were growing up, like get to a town and and immediately disappear. And like I'd ask someone like, Hey, have you seen that guy, Derek? Um, and they'd be like, Oh, he, he actually he actually asked me where the bad part of town was and then he disappeared, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I can't sit here and like um, you know, I'll give you i had been in a band before that in the 90s called popsico that i'd gotten pretty far with i started from scratch and got pretty far with and right before we were about to get a major label record deal right before we were about to do shit our singer who had also gotten strung out died like in a car accident Mm. so it's kind of a sad story i talk about it so like casually now because it's been like 100 years and i've gotten over it but like at the time it was like devastating like first time your friend, one of your friends dies young and you're just like, holy shit. And you saw it coming because you saw him become a drug addict and you tried to help him and then nothing could be done. And then they they die, you know? Um, so that had happened. So I had kind of vowed to never be in a band with a, with a junkie again. And here I was not only in a band with a junkie but in a band with a junkie who was someone who I'd grown up with. So it was extra painful because I'm looking at this guy like destroying himself but I'm also thinking about like his mom who I knew, his house where I'd gone and played as a kid, his brother, who I knew, his dad, who I knew, you know, it's like, it's too close to home. It's like, fuck, you know? So I was like, I have to remove myself from this situation. This band is going, is, is, it's an amazing band. The music's great, but like, it's a, just, just a train wreck waiting to happen. So mm-hmm. I kind of like, it's kind of a funny story, but like, I was with, Derek, on behalf of the Ataris in New York City during CMJ, somehow we had gone out there because like someone had said we could stay at their hotel if we went to CMJ, and we thought it would be a good place to promote the Ataris. So we went out to New York for CMJ, and I'd seen a show, this really great venue that's not there anymore called Coney Island High. It was um, like a fat records night, and the band Me First and the Gimme Gimmes were playing, and the band Swingin' and Utters were opening for them. And I knew the band Swing and Utters. I had met them before in San Francisco, and I noticed that their guitar player Max was actually playing bass. And I went up to him afterwards. I was like, "Yeah, that was a great show, dude. But what the fuck? Why are you playing bass?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, dude. Our our bass player um, like decided to go to grad school and quit the band. So I'm I'm playing bass till so we can find somebody." So right then and there, I was thinking, "This is my exit strategy for the Ataris." Um, and so I literally like scrawled my phone number. And I was like, dude, if you ever need a bass player, fucking call me up, and I will be in San Francisco in five hours. You know, and I I love your band; I would do it in a heartbeat. And he's like, seriously? I was like, yeah, dude. And I mean, we were drunk in a bar in New York, and I like wrote my number down on with a sharpie on some fucking scrap of a flyer. You know, handed it to him. Um, Was this ninety six or ninety seven? Ninety. Seven, it must have been. Okay, God, it must have been ninety-seven. Well, was it before yeah. the
1: album came out or after? I'm assuming was it after? Did you guys have an album out. It there? was after. It's, okay.
2: it's a really weird timeline for me because I can't remember like specifically. I think it might have been the thing where like Chris might have moved to Santa Barbara in ninety. Well, I'll tell you because he's he was born in seventy-seven and he was nineteen when I met him, so that would be ninety-six, right? Yeah. So I met him in 96 and then we started playing shows into 97 and I probably went to CMJ in 97. I'd have to check.
1: Um, well, that would make sense. Cause that's then the, that, yeah, that's when yeah. the album came. The album came out in um, April of 97. I was at CMJ in 96. That's why I asked. So oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I, I don't well, know if I would have ran it. pretty any... sure it was 97. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it was year. 97. when, when well, CMJ – didn't CMJ happen in, like – didn't it, like, used to happen in October, and then they switched it to – like, I can't remember. I well, can't remember. it
1: was, used to be end of September, October in that area, and then it actually hasn't happened in the last couple of years. Um, some company right, right. bought it out, and they don't – it doesn't happen anymore. Well,
2: if that's the case, if that's the case, then it must have been 96, because – it must have been CMJ 96, because that would mean I'd met Chris Rowe while he was 19 – and um his because his birthday is in january it's oddly enough he's literally his birthday's the same day and year as tim from sugar cult which is so fucking crazy um but uh anyway i'll try to speed all this up because i know you guys are probably like oh fuck dude there's so much other shit we want to talk about because i'm <laughs> digging way deeper than i than i usually dig i don't usually even remember half this shit because i'm because i only thing people usually ask me about a sugar cult but i figure since you guys are about the nineties. I might as well dig into this, you know. This is like a really dusty box yeah, deep yeah. in the fucking attic here. You know. But uh so stop me if if I'm if I'm straying too fucking far here. But but uh anyway, so God, that's so weird. I haven't thought about this. But yeah, we were in CMJ it must have been that 96 must like I must have been standing right next to you dude
1: it's entirely possible
2: are you the guy that stole my beer i i don't know um, i
1: was st- i was standing next to I, Mike Watt at a Sebado show and uh, so oh, maybe you were
2: there too I there. <laughs> maybe i could have joined Sebado instead fuck <laughs> but uh, but anyway yeah so i mean that was a crazy that was a crazy year um, but we had so much fun and i met i remember i met the ramones and Oh, fuck. Maybe it was 97, because I have Joey Ramone's autograph, and it says 97. So that m- I might have gone back a year later. I don't fucking know. Anyway, this is weird. It's like trying to trying to piece this shit together. Um, <laughs> but but anyways, um, sorry for the listeners. Hopefully you can edit the boring fucking <laughs> me trying to remember what year it was story out. But uh so, so must be key. I listen to podcasts all the time, and I hate when someone just rambles on. And I'm totally <laughs> being that guy right now. Fuck. Um, sorry, well, guys. Well, let's. Uh, um, I, right. I, I might don't that. tune out. The good shit's just around the corner. Okay.
3: I might regret uh, asking this, but um, I'm going to go here. So we're. I'd like to go back even further. Uh, <laughs> further know, than I know, that. I know. Here I know. I know. But you're into so many different things with with music, and obviously you're super passionate about rock and roll. When when did that all start? When did you, when did you get the bug? What was the moment? What was the record? The band? How did it all
2: start? Oh man, all right. Well, but I feel like I left a big loose end here. Can I just finish this little tiny story because it's good? <laughs>
1: to, okay. Tie a bow to, on it, and then we'll go the to Jay's question.
2: I don't want people to have like story blue balls, where like you get almost the story, but then you never finish it.
0: All right, so, you, so check it
2: out. all, So I'm at that CMJ. I see Max playing guitar in the swing and, or playing bass in the swing and others. I asked him, i give him my number and, and I forget about it. And then I go back and I'm on tour with the Atari trying to figure out like, okay, how do I get, how do I get out of this band? Um, and literally this is so fucking nineties. Cause again, it's got comes, comes to the answering machine in my bedroom at my mom's house. And we happen to be playing a show like relatively near Santa Barbara. So I was like, you guys, we're driving to my parents' house, and we're fucking staying there so we can like actually like sleep in a nice house instead of like some random chick's floor where we like want to sneak out in the morning so we don't have to deal with some, you know. So I was like, we're driving to my to my parents' house. We get to my parents' house. I check my messages. It's literally Max going, "Hey Marco, what's going on? This is Max from Swingin' Under Zone. Remember we talked in New York, but um." We have a European tour, uh, we are leaving on in a couple weeks. And you were saying you'd play bass, so just making sure you have a passport. And, um, you know, just wanted to know what your address was, so I could FedEx you our CDs and tell you what songs to learn. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that's wow. insane. And I was like, I'm fucking going. And it just so happened that the Ataris, we were on a tour and our last show was in San Francisco. So I spent the rest of the tour in the, in the van, learning the Swing and Utters songs, like, you know, while we were on our long drives you know, just learning them with like a tiny little acoustic guitar that was in there and making charts for myself. And then I have the band just literally drop me off in San Francisco in some fucking sketchy neighborhood at this punk rock house. That was like the swing and utter's house. And the idea was that we, I was going to stay with them and practice with them. But all we ended up doing was like going out and getting drunk and like their drummer didn't show up till two of the three practices. So we really only had one full actual practice. And then I was on a fucking plane to Berlin to play 48 shows in 50 days as the bass player of the Swingin' Utters. <laughs> and this gets even crazier because we were sharing the tour bus with another band called No Use for a Name that was also on Fat Records. You know, No Use for a oh, Name. Oh, sure, sure. sure, yeah. the yeah. band. Okay, so we shared the tour bus with No Use for a Name, and the guitar player of No Use for a Name at the time is none other than Chris Shiflet, the guy that I started playing bass so that I could be in a band with and who's now in the Foo Fighters. It all comes How fucking around. Small world is that? <laughs> <laughs> How fucking full circle craziness is that? Like that's awesome. So there we are in Europe on tour together, just going, Holy shit. This is crazy. Like old bros from the same hometown on tour together, you know, just going for it. And, um, and I'm literally like learning the swing and other songs on stage while we're playing in front of a bunch of crazy German punk rockers that are going fucking nuts, you know? So that was a, that was, that was a lot of fun. So I had all that experience before Sugar Cult, (laughs) which helped Sugar Cult a little bit because I had a lot of knowledge from those experiences of like, all right, guys, here's how bands can do shit. This is what we should do, you know? Uh, So yeah, whatever. It was kind of, it was kind of a trip. How did I get into music? I mean, I don't fucking know, you know, Um, you know, when you're a little kid, you, you know, you, you you have like astronaut, rock star, uh, athlete, like those are your options, right? Like, there's not a lot of other things kids dream about being. They're not like, oh man, what I want to do is be a fucking data systems analyst when I grow up. (laughs) Like, you know, and plus, when I was a kid, like, we, we got into music. I can't remember how I got the bug. I had a, um, I had a really good friend growing up and we just kind of did everything together and like listen to music together. We, there was a, and he would kind of like turn me on to shit all the time. And then right when I was growing up was when like MTV was like ruling the world. So we had that. So, so music culture was pretty fucking big when I was growing up because it was mm-hmm. like, fuck dude, you can, you know, like the generation before me had like the radio I imagine that was pretty cool but there's nothing like seeing you know fucking motley crew and deaf leopard on tv and just go and it looks larger than life you know Yep. Yeah. um i had i'd grown up like going to, on family trips to the east coast because my my mom's family is from the east coast and we had like cousins that were six or seven years older than me and they would kind of like you know you sneak in their room and kind of take notes like okay they have acdc poster on their wall, Aerosmith poster, Kiss poster, cheap trick, okay, I guess that's cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you sort of, like, inform yourself of that kind of shit, and then you look at the pictures on the record, and you're like, holy fuck, Kiss looks awesome. But, you know, it doesn't really resonate, because it's like, for one, you're like fucking six, and for two, it's someone else's music. It feels like another generation's music. And then when you, I started finding out about bands... You know, like, um, you know, I got into like the police and Devo and shit like that, but that still didn't hit me the same way that like what, what to be totally honest, like what first like enthralled me was like things like ACDC and then like Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. Ozzy Osbourne, like shit that will like to a little kid is like, they're kind of like co- cartoon characters or comic book characters. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I really like. One of my fa- favorite artists was uh, cheap trick and not because I don't think I appreciated them the way I do now. I mean, they're still one of my all time favorite bands. I think I just thought Rick Nielsen was a cool cartoon character, mm-hmm. you know, cause he was kind of wacky and, and, and he was a real showman on stage. And I really like that really resonated with me and Angus young, like the way he would like move around all crazy. That really resonated with me. Um, you know, the way Nikki six looked on stage, I could care less about whether he was a good bass player or not. I just, he looked cool and mm-hmm. looked like a superhero, you know? And the same thing sort of happened. Like as I delved in deeper, like I would read an interview with Motley Crue and maybe talking about how much they like David Bowie. And I was like, David Bowie, that's the guy that sings fucking let's dance. And wears mm-hmm. like a fucking Miami vice, um, leisure suit, you know, like, And then I realized, I was like, maybe there's something else. Maybe I need to go to the record store and look in the David Bowie section and see what the David Bowie they're talking about, you know? So I kind of just did the math. I was like, well, if those guys are grownups now when they were kids, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago. And I went and looked at the records from the early seventies and I was like, Oh, I get it. That's what they mean by David Bowie. And I find like fucking dime, you know, Aladdin Sane and diamond dogs and, Ziggy Stardust and, you know, fucking all those great records, um, hunky Dory, you know, and you're like, even as a kid, you're still, you listen to that shit and you're like, okay, this is pretty cool, but it still sounds kind of weird and doesn't sound as like glossy and, and produced as the shit I'm accustomed to listening to at this, you know, stage Mm -hmm. of music culture, but at least it plants the seed that that shit's cool. And you kind of start to like contend with it. And then eventually, you know, you become a musician and you listen to it and you go, Oh my God, this is fucking phenomenal. You know, how, how can it, like the Beatles I thought were children's music when I was a kid, like this, this doesn't sound like real music. It sounds like music for like cartoons or something. And then you become a songwriter and you become a musician. You start to go back and listen to it. You're like, Holy fucking shit. This is insane. Like the depth of this stuff is, is like beyond, you know, it's unfathomable. And, um, and that's I don't know that's what happens I guess that's what every generation does you kind of play this game of uh of like cultural telephone where you your generation misinterprets you know listens to the bands that are misinterpreting the previous generation of bands that are misinterpreting what you know I'm sure David Bowie was just trying to be the Beatles and the Beatles were just trying to be Chuck Berry and Chuck Berry was just trying to fucking you know be Howlin' Wolf and he was just Mm -hmm. trying to you know, make fucking a dollar so you could get a cup of coffee, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like everyone was trying to be something and then they, they their accidental misinterpretation of it yield something that becomes original, hence Sugar Cult. We set out to try to be super drag and the best we could do was like, listen to old Elvis Costello records. And then that led us to Nick Lowe records, which led us to fucking, you know, really getting into this like ups- kind of getting obsessed with obscure sort of seventies power pop. And, um, you know, weird shit like that. And, but also combine it with like nineties rock radio, like Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Everclear, Smashing Pumpkins, all that shit that, that our singer grew up on Green Day, huge influence, have his wall covered in Green Day posters. And we kind of just like, you know, for lack of a better term, we were like, okay, we'll be, we'll be Elvis Costello meets Nirvana and super drag. And that was kind of our blueprint. And then we try to go out and write songs and we realize like, fuck, we can't write songs. We're not as angry as Kurt Cobain. We're not Mm -hmm. as good as Elvis Costello. We're not as sophisticated as super drag. Fuck here we are. (laughs) Our limitations, this is the best we can do. And then people started bobbing their heads and wanting us to play shows and liking us. And you're like, what? You like this? It's not even as good as super drag. And then they start liking us even more than they ever liked super drag. And you're like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You should be listening to Superdrag, not us, you know? Um, And then before you know it, you become a band that sells a lot of records and has songs on the radio and people at your shows that are singing your songs. And you just go, you just kind of look at your friend on the stage and go, dude, just fucking go with it. (laughs) You know, they'll figure out eventually that Superdrag's better than us, you know? (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, and that's kind of what happens. And, you know.
1: So this whole time, you're you're talking about... I don't fucking... You're talking about Santa Barbara, right? When you're talking about where you're growing up.
2: Yeah, we grew up in Santa Barbara and Sugar okay. Cult started in Santa Barbara. But shortly after Sugar Cult started, we, we migrated to the band, moved to L.A. And I stayed in Santa Barbara for probably about a year. And, and I was like commuting back and forth. Um, and then I just got finally just got fed up and was like the band was getting so much momentum. that I was like, OK, fuck it when we deal, I'm moving to LA and we got a record deal. And I literally like worked my last shift at the record store for years. I worked my last shift and quit and got in my car and drove to LA straight to a Mexican restaurant where we met with our lawyer and our and our person and deal. So I literally like worked that job until the day I, (laughs) of the night that I signed the record deal, you know? So it was kind of fun. And then, and then got a place and I mean, I still live in LA now. But, you know, L.A. is an hour and a half drive from Santa Barbara. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it feels like a whole different fucking universe, but it's really not that far geographically.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that it does feel like another universe. I actually, um, my wife and I uh, honeymooned in Santa Barbara um, years ago. Oh, nice. And um, I remember being Please. there and I was like, you know, this the temperature is very consistent throughout the whole year. It's kind of perfect in terms of the the temperature and which helps because it's you know wine country obviously and with that whole industry and then um it you know driving around there and stuff I remember like commenting I'm like like uh I don't I don't remember seeing any like music clubs I was like well I guess you know everybody goes to L A to see shows I mean I guess there's no um clubs here but I'm assuming that maybe those were like whether those like house shows you guys were playing in Santa Barbara or were they are like smaller like bars or places that maybe tourists don't know about when they're, when they're in town. Cause obviously we were hitting like, you know, the wineries and, and that kind of stuff. Um,
0: right,
2: right. Well, I mean, kind of all of the above, there's obvi- there's always been venues to play in Santa Barbara. Um, there's the Santa Barbara bowl. Like, I mean, for instance, Radiohead just played there right before they went to Coachella. Um, And I mean, the the Santa Barbara bowl is a beautiful, you ever get a chance to see a show there. It's one of the most beautiful venues ever. It's like up there with like red rocks in Colorado, or one of those places where it's just like, you can see the ocean on a clear day. You can see the ocean from the, from your seats. And then like watch the sunset over the ocean, you know, while you're watching some, you know, like while you're watching Ryan Adams, just fucking crush it or something like that, you know? So you can, it's a great place to see shows. Bob Marley actually played his last ever show in America there before he died. Um, But, uh, and then there's like a few clubs, like, you know, there's always been a few little clubs, but me and my friends, you know, um, in the early days when we were all just figuring it out and forming our first bands, I mean, this is, you know, again, way before sugar cult, even this is going back to when we were like, you know, young teenagers forming our first bands, we couldn't get shows in the, in the venues, you know, downtown, because they were more like nightclubs and dance clubs. And,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: um it was 21 and over clubs and shit like that. So we, we literally did that. We did like house parties. There, there's a place, well, there's a school in Santa Barbara, UCSB. And the adjacent to UCSB is a little square mile college town. It's kind of an infamous place called Isla Vista. People call it IV. And, you know, that's it's notorious. Like they used to have these crazy Halloween parties and Basically, when we were kids growing up, you you learn really quickly that there's a there's a part of town where anything goes and you can, you know, meet college girls to make out with that won't know you're 15 years old and you can drink beer at parties where they will give it to you for free. And there's they're not carding and the cops aren't going to say anything because they're just there to sort of make sure no one lights himself on fire, you know, like they just, they, there's no, the cops don't have a prayer to like issue every single person who's doing something illegal, a ticket. So they kind of just like, let it happen. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like a beautiful, I don't know if it's still like that, but it was almost like when we were growing up, it was like this beautiful like opportunity for, for, uh, almost anarchy. and, and so we were literally, um, you know, go to shows and bands would play in little like rented out places. Like you could rent out this community center called the red barn. It's actually where I played my first show ever. And it was just like a community space. And you would put down, like I think you would put down, I can't remember cause it was a long time ago, but I think you paid like $25 and had to put down a hundred dollars deposit, like cleaning deposit. So, you know, a hundred dollars when you're 14 is like, you got to fucking work hard. You know, that's like $25 per band member that you got to cobble together and, you know, or maybe $25 per band. If you get four bands on the bill or something like that. And you would like police that shit so carefully and like stay two hours afterwards, sweeping up every last little cigarette butt and like anything that was because you want to get that cleaning deposit back. Right. So we would put on shows that were like, basically just teenage punk rock shows, but there was also a lot of people in town that were a couple years older than us in punk bands. And they, you know, bands would come to town like from Santa Cruz or from, um, you know, Reno or from LA or from Ventura, from San Diego. And they would play the red barn. So we would just go to shows. And that was the weird thing for me. Cause like when I first started going to concerts, you'd go to like, you know, you get your friend's mom to drive you to LA to see like Motley Crue play at the forum and it would be this big giant spectacle with explosions and ramps and you know and it was like well fuck i've seen them on tv and now here i am seeing them like from way up in the in the stands and it was pretty cool but it, you know then i started going to like shows at the this place they called the red barn this little barn you could rent out and have shows um and there was another place that was like a chinese restaurant where you could go see shows and then there'd be another place that was kind of a community center called the um the boys and girls club and they would have shows every once in a while. Most of these places would have like one or two shows and then it would get like something would happen, you know, like something would get vandalized or someone would get hurt and then they'd never have a fucking show again. So like once I started learning about these punk shows, me and my friends were like, well, fuck dude, These shows are usually free or they're like four bucks to get in. And, and you go and like, there isn't a a divide there's there's not like a divide between the audience and the band and i know this sounds like you know obviously now there's everyone knows about this shit but like back then it was like a real fucking epiphany to be like watching a band play and you were like well that guy's got like bad skin and just wearing thrift store clothes playing on cheap shitty fucking gear he's playing like a squire guitar through a pv amp you know this is not like the glossy crew show at the forum this is literally like a, a punk band and i just watched them play a show and now they're like standing next to me selling like seven inch singles and i'm like talking to the guy that was a minute ago just like up on stage playing a guitar solo and it was such a weird epiphany to, to like for an mtv generation to like break that fourth wall and be like holy shit Bands are actually people. They're not actually fucking superheroes. They're not actually like comic book characters or something. Like, you can actually, like, like you're like, I have a guitar just like that guy's guitar. I could fucking make up a song like that. I could fucking, I'm, you know, I don't have my shit together. He doesn't have his shit together. And he's playing, and he calls himself a band. And so we all, like, went and formed bands. We were like, holy shit, we got to form bands. You know, so that's what we all did. And then we'd start putting on our, you know, playing those same venues ourselves. And, you know, we would go skateboard to uh, around Isla Vista and see some kid, like, washing his car, some college kid, and be like, hey, dude, if we pay for a keg, can you clear out your driveway and let us put on a show here this weekend? And they'd be like, yeah, man, sounds, a, sounds cool. <laughs> he my roommate, hey, Steve, can we have a fucking party on Friday? These kids are going to pay for our keg. And he'd be like, yeah. You know, and we'd be like, done. Write down the address. Go to fucking the copy shop, make make like cut and paste flyers with that address on it. Go to the print shop at our school and make copies of it. Hand them out to all the weirdos, put them up in record stores. And voila, we had a show. And we'd be like looking forward to it. Dude, we got a show. It's coming up. And like building it up as though it was like a real thing. But really, it was literally just some fucking apartment. Half the time you get there and they're like forgot they even agreed to do it. And you're like, mm. dude, remember you said you were going to move your car? Uh, we're here to play. And you're like, <laughs> oh shit, dude, that guy went out of town. I don't even know where his keys are. You know, like yeah. it was so unorganized. But somehow it worked, and like all your friends would show up. Be like this. You kind of created your own little teenage fucking you know ecosystem that just worked. And like the bands, the older bands would help out the younger bands, and you know all the girls were would come just cuz they wanted to you know like people that were like skaters would come and people that were just kind of lost and just anyone who didn't fit in somewhere like who wasn't at the football game was basically there cuz it was like this is like the the anti football game this is like where you go if you're if you're a weirdo you know um, and we just kind of that was we were very lucky in such a beautiful town to have so much like such a huge population of like, you know, dissatisfied um, teenagers that were willing to create that little Petri dish for us all to grow up in, you know, and that's just what happened. And we just, you know, flunked upwards, Everyone sort of like little by little got their shit together. And, um, maybe some of the clubs in, in the more legitimate venues, Downtown, would we would take a risk like, hey, let's go ask them if we can play and promise them we could bring 30 people if they let us play, and they started giving us chances and little by little we actually get to play shows and actually bring people and then suddenly we were like, holy shit, we're playing and then we would start like getting more, um, you know, ambitious and like, hey, what if we tried to play a show in L.A. Uh, you know, let's like have, let's have Luke's bomb drive us down to L.A. and like go to every single fucking venue and like go into the office and ask him if we could play a show. And I remember, um, I remember actually vividly walking into a venue. It was either the Troubadour or a place called Madame Wong's West. And the guy working in there was like a dude with long hair and like, looked like a dude in the band and he actually was in a band. Um, and he gave us a show and we tried to be all cool. He's all, well, I could put you guys here Wednesday, the May 24th. And we're like, Oh, okay, cool. And we're like keeping it together. As soon as we walked out of the place, we're like, "Holy fucking shit! We're playing!" Oh my God. Well, that guy yeah. grew up to be Crush Management, Jonathan Daniel from Crush Management, who manages Fallout Boy, and you know now he manages everybody. He manages Weezer and fucking you know Cheap Trick, you know, he manages yeah. Panic at the Disco, Fallout Boy, all those bands. Um, but back then he was like a dude in a local band in LA, you know, that was trying to make it, and that was like his crappy job working in the booking office of of some club. It's kind mm-hmm. of a weird story. But uh, you know, just just that was what happened. I mean, honestly, I don't remember this shit until I'm telling it to you right now. But, but it's like <laughs> it's weird to even think. Well, it sounds how, like it how was, intertwined yeah. all these fucking stories are.
3: It sounds like it was a cool little scene. I mean, it, it, almost like um, what you'd hear. You know, where we grew up more in the Midwest and like smaller kind of farm towns, you'd see that kind of thing where it was just kids getting together and just making shows, and maybe there'd be like a little youth center you could go and start trying to do things and then you'd eventually start to travel out to whatever the closest next city is. Um, I guess what's interesting for that is that the next closest city is huge, but then there's really, it's difficult to get anywhere else from there. Right. I mean, it's not like an easy drive up to San Francisco or something. It's kind of like we can go here or LA. uh,
2: It's not not impossible. You know, we would definitely like, like, you know, playing a show in San Francisco was like something you would do. You would kind of make a weekend of it. Like, okay, we can secure a show in San Francisco somewhere. Then we'll also book a show in Santa Cruz. And then we'll, we'll try and get a show like in Santa Rosa or Sacramento. You can sort of make like a little, like mini tour out of it, like a little Mm -hmm. three day tour, um, based around the fact that you got a show in San Francisco. Yeah. But, uh, But, you know, it's weird, like, growing up in a town, I mean, you know, you and your wife were in Santa Barbara, so you know it's, like, it's so not L.A. It's, like, there's no tall buildings, there's no billboards, there's no real crime or pollution. I mean, it's it's a really ideal place. So I would say it's a beautiful place to to start out and end up. But, you know, like anywhere, you know, you can find a teenager in the middle of fucking, you know, paradise, and they're going to be fucking bored Mm -hmm. about something. They're going to be complaining, look, this place sucks. And, you know, like, you know, teenagers, I think just by nature are, are just find a way to be dissatisfied. Maybe it's part of their, you know, part of what turns someone from a kid into a grown up. Yeah. Um, It's becoming dissatisfied. We are in Santa Barbara. It's kind (laughs) of like, you know, we're complaining that we're bored because Santa Barbara is this fucking God, there's nothing to do here. All the good bands play in L.A. We can't get to L.A. because we don't have cars yet because we're not old enough to drive yet. And what are we gonna fucking do? Hang out in the record store, hang out in the music store, you know, go to our friends' houses, and, you know, what are we gonna do? You know, like, um, see, see little so, did you know, us oh, the
3: kids in Ohio were like, man, those kids in California, like, they can go skateboard on the street and, like, walk places. <laughs> they don't have snow. It doesn't snow. It's nice all the time. No.
2: Anyway, blah, blah, blah grew up in a small town, but like the the good thing about being close to LA was we were close enough to LA to come down here and, and take notes and sort of check out what was going on, but then go back to Santa Barbara and we could sort of be the big fish in the small pond. Whereas in LA it was very easy to just kind of get lost, you know? So I think I always advise people this, like, you know, come to LA, you know, once you've got, like get your thing together and then bring it to LA when you're ready to bring it to the market. You know, when you're ready to launch it, don't come to LA to try to make it out of nowhere. Cause, cause it's, you, you know, you can get, LA will just fucking eat you alive. You know, if you're like, if you're clueless and you don't know what you're doing, you don't have a plan. Like it's better to like, be the person that writes a killer screenplay at a little vegan cafe in, you know, Wisconsin. And then gets it the, gets it out there and people, you know, gets on someone's radar and then they fly you out to LA. And then suddenly now, now it makes sense to move to LA because you're getting meetings all the time. And, you know what I mean? Rather mm-hmm. than like moving from Wisconsin with nothing to say for yourself to LA and then just like trying to figure out where you should even begin, you know, it's better to like have something that's somewhat formed and then come bring it to LA to help launch it. LA is a really good, like, launch pad, but it's not the best incubator, so to speak.
1: So you basically you're saying is the welcome to the jungle video is is fairly accurate. You're going to end 100%
2: up 100% accurate. Yeah. Like it's so it's so <laughs> bang on. It's like exactly.
1: Hey, um so I don't want I don't want to lose sight of um the important thing that you've got come up because we're an hour into this and I, I felt like we should have done this at the oh, beginning. Shit. But we should talk about the sweet relief fund um show that you are taking part in that is uh on may 14th can you talk a little bit about that so people can uh, check that okay. out
2: so right now you totally my name's marco desantis and you totally have my permission to erase the whole fucking interview up until now okay <laughs> so <laughs> um no if you're if you're not asleep or like you know like you know trying to fucking like pound a bottle of whiskey to, to you know sedate yourself right now after this long diatribe. Then uh, I'll tell you about this. It's uh, I mean that's just something that came up. you know, um, actually, it's a kid from I think he I think he's via Chicago. I don't know if he's from Chicago, but uh, you probably heard about it in the news a couple of years ago. There was um, a band called Medina Lake, and one of the guys in the band was like tried to rescue a girl who was, uh, he went outside, he heard screams and he, and he was like, um, and I might preface that this guy's like about five feet tall and has the build of like a nine-year-old girl. So he's like, he's not like the type of dude who can go out and kick some ass, right? And he he's like this little emo boy and he, he heard this screaming and he just instinctively like ran to it because it sounded like someone was screaming for their life. And basically he sees this, this woman being like severely fucking beaten, like Within inches of her life by her apparently like really like enraged husband, you know. So it's like this domestic abuse situation, and he just like dives between them and like somehow separates them, and you know saves her, you know, and and then starts like trying to calm the guy down, you know. So super big heroic act of bravery on part of this little small slight dude. He calms the guy down. The guy starts like doing the thing where he's like begging for forgiveness and i will change, baby. Just give me another chance. I'm sorry. You know, And meanwhile, this girl's like bleeding. This guy from Medina Lake in his phone, like in his pocket, in his back pocket dials 911 on his phone and just leaves it on and, um, thinks the guy's calm. And then like, before you know it, long story short, the guy, um, picks up a rock and clocks him in the head with it. And that's the last thing he remembers before he passes out from witnesses. Apparently he's like, took the cops like, you know, five to 10 minutes to show up. And the guy was like kicking and punching this guy in the face against a curb for like the whole time until the cops got there. Mm. So this guy's like beaten within inches of his life and was in a coma for like, um, you know, medically induced coma for like a month, this horrible story. Right. And he also had just lost his record deal and had forgotten to pay his insurance. So his insurance lapsed, so he didn't have insurance. Mm. Okay. So while he's unconscious, this company called this this foundation called Sweet Relief hears about this and goes, and Sweet Relief basically is a you know charity that that raises money for musicians in need, kind of like, you know, one of these things like music cares or whatever, right? It's a similar concept. And like people who this kid doesn't even know, like Billy Corgan plays a smashing pumpkin show at the Metro in Chicago where all the proceeds went to this guy's medical bills. Um, Madonna donated like memorabilia to be auctioned off to, towards this guy's medical bills. KISS, Paul Stanley donated shit to be auctioned off for this on behalf of this guy. Like all these people from the music community that didn't even know this guy personally just like felt sorry for him and donated money and, and you know charity auction items to his cause. And he was able to survive and rehabilitate and basically completely come back to normal. And so when he got out of all that after like a year of re- rehabilitation, um, he like vowed to like go work for Sweet Relief. He's like, "All right, I'm you know whatever you guys need, I'm here to help you now. You know, you guys saved my life, so what's up?" And so now he's like their ambassador, like who connects them to artists and, and stuff like that. So he called me up and said, hey, do you remember me? And, and Sugar Call had toured with them in Australia back in like 2008, I think. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember you, what's up? And he's like, so I'm putting together this thing with, um, with like the cast of Stranger Things and a bunch of other artists and just trying to get everyone together. And we're gonna do like sort of inspired by the Stranger Things sort of 80s Steven Spielberg vibe. I'm going to do this whole thing where it's like everyone's going to play 80 songs and we're going to use raise a bunch of money and then it's all going to go for this foundation, right? So I'm doing that um, on May 14th at the Fonda in Los Angeles. And it's like, I think I'm going to play some songs with um, John, John Feldman from Goldfinger, um, who's a band that we had toured with a bunch of times back in the early days of Sugar Cult. And who's obviously become like a huge producer now. I mean, John Feldman produced the new Blink-182 record. He produced Five Seconds of Summer, and All Time Low. Like he's, the youth. he's like a huge producer now. Um, so he's going to do some songs with me. And I think the drummer of OK Go is going to play drums with us. And like tons of people are involved. Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's, Tenacious D, Sarah Silverman, um, Corey from Slipknot, um, the dude from Velvet Revolver, the dude from Anthrax. Um, fuck! I'm probably forgetting much. Oh, the two guys from two of the guys from Taking Back Sunday are going to do some songs. Weird Al Yankovic. Like a, yeah, Weird Al Yankovic is on the fucking bill, so it's just it's going to be kind of a fun night of just a bunch of people doing a bunch of different songs. And you know, I like these kind of cause related things because it really brings people together. Um, you know, most artists I've I've learned from just you know. Knowing a bunch personally, and then just interacting with them through the years from being in a in a band that toured a lot, like most people are, their hearts pretty much in the right place. Like they love playing music. It's a labor of love that that grew into a profession, and um, you know. But they're you know they have their guard up when it's like oh we're doing a festival. They go oh shit someone's going to use me to make a bunch of money, much bunch of sponsorship money, you know, for themselves to line their pockets. So the thing that's cool about like events like this is like everyone just comes together and goes, wait a minute, what? This is for a good cause that's going to, you know, give like medical attention to people with catastrophic, you know, sit- medical situations or, you know, big diseases or things that are just like, you know, um, then some musician hopefully will never have to suffer, but like could suffer. And everyone just kind of just right away just signs up. it's It's not a matter of whether they want to do it. It's a matter of whether they're available and then they just like yeah we're right on we're on board so all these people are in it and they keep announcing new artists that are getting involved so it's gonna be real fun you know it's gonna be a, a fun thing and i think the 80s covers is gonna bring like be a really disarming kind of spirit to it where everyone's gonna be kind of like having fun with these these songs that you sort of like you sort of love and you sort of hate they're kind of like guilty pleasures or something you know right so, and- i think it's gonna be kind of cool we'll see
1: people can go to um, sweetrelief.org to find out more about the show and just about the organization in general, which was actually founded by um, Victoria Williams back in the early nineties. And we reviewed the original. Oh, is this
2: sp- that same thing? Yeah, I didn't even
1: know that. Yeah. We reviewed oh the original, God, uh, sweet relief compilation back a couple of years ago that has like Pearl jam on oh, it. And, shit. and, uh, I think Matthew sweets on there and, and some other folks.
2: Um, oh my God. And, you know, and Victoria Williams is married to uh, the guy from the Jayhawks who's yeah. like, fuck this. Talk about 90s. Like, man, can we just like, t- let's just talk about like some underrated 90s records that, you know, Hollywood Town Hall by the Jayhawks is just one of the best fucking records ever made. You know, um, we're big fans. That record of... just came out now. Like, it would just be like all like, it's amazing how much shit happened in the 90s. It just People just weren't. I'm not going to say we, and I don't want to sound like pompous, like we were so fucking (laughs) turned on that we knew about all this (laughs) foresight to, you know, to know that this shit was good when we first heard it, but like the popular culture just wasn't ready for this. Now we're going to call it, you know, Americana or, you know, all kinds of, try to call it so many different things. Now you're starting to see it with like Sturgis Simpson and, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Chris Stapleton and all this. And um Nikki lane like you're, you're starting to see like and ryan adams is up on stage playing a song with fucking john mayer the other day like all this shit that like you knew was fucking great the minute you heard it you're like this is so fucking great but it never got to like yeah i know from the mainstream you know it got maybe some critics liked it but like you would play it for people and just go why is this not like why is this not resonating with more people you know such good records those jayhawks records those,
3: those yeah. first couple ones we did jayhawks the sound of lies and because oh, nice. i are big fans of that record yeah and
2: that's, that's you the my favorites are hollywood record. town hall and tomorrow green grass yeah so that's and, rad too and tomorrow the green
1: grass every i think if you're familiar with the jayhawks that's the album you're familiar with so we kind of wanted to go with the album that lesser that was lesser known or right or, you know and now it's such an odd oh, record it. and and We both kind of dig it because it's it's really just it's the Gary Loris albums because Mark Olson had left the band I think at that point right so it's it's just a weird turn for that band but it's really interesting record I think it still holds up Um, but yeah we've covered all the J bands revisit that record yeah
2: okay so there's some there's more there's more you got to there's a band from Santa Barbara Santa Barbara had a really weird wave and this this plays into Sugar Cult is we had a lot of like older brothers in sugar in our town. There was like a wave in the nineties for some reason around nineties. Oh my God. I left out so much of the story, dude. I left out so much of the story. We'll have to do another one. I'll have to challenge uh, Kelly and come back on another time. <laughs> cause, Cause I forgot to tell you that before the Atari's I I ran an indie label in the nineties with Joey Cape from lag And the first band I signed was a dude. I was screen printing t-shirts with, who had been in the band that I joined with Chris, who's now in the Foo Fighters. He he had been the drummer, and then he cut his hair short and started wearing glasses and started a band um, called Nerf Herder.
1: Right, Nerf Herder. So which you were right. briefly so he, in. So
2: Nerf Herder, I was screen printing T-shirts with him. He got me like a part-time job, screen printing T-shirts with him in this shop. And he'd play me. He's all, dude, I got this new band with this guy Perry. And he played me the thing, and I was like, oh my God, this is rad. And then my friend Joey was like, dude, I'm making a record label. I'm starting, a, I'm making a compilation. And I was like, dude, you should put Steve's band Nerf Herder on there. He listened to it. He loved it. And he was like, dude, we should do like a seven inch with this band. And that grew into doing a whole record with them. And that's why Joey Cape, singer of Lagwagon, produced the first Nerf Herder record. And we put it out on our label, which was called My Records. And then it got we got in way over our heads you know cuz it was literally like Joey started the label and then forgot that he had like a year worth of tour commitments so he like came over to my mom's house and dropped off his computer and like he was all here dude I'll pay you uh you know 200 bucks a week run my label for me I got to go here's a couple phone numbers you can call and that was it and then he's off to Europe and I was like okay hey, how do I plug in this computer and I just like <laughs> figured it out And I was between bands, and I was like, okay, um, I was always the guy in all my bands that made all the phone calls, so I guess I'll figure this shit out. And I just like called some of the numbers he gave me, and one of the numbers was this guy up in uh, Northern California who worked for Fat Records, and he was on his way to the radio station to bring some stuff over, and I persuaded him to bring Nerf Herder's record over as well. He brought it to them. They played it on their little like catch-of-the-day, local find-of-the-day show. They played the song Van Halen the phones never stopped ringing from the minute they played the show, the song. And then somehow they located me and they were like, okay, dude, what's up with this band? Who, who are you guys again? And we were like, "Um, we're like a label. um, You know, we print out, we, I think we like 2000 copies of the record of the CD. And all of a sudden it was like game on. Cause I didn't even know, anything about radio or how to, you know, how record companies functioned or anything. And suddenly I was thrown in the deep end because it turns out that that station was like the second most powerful station in America. And they were like, we want to add this song to our playlist because it's getting such great um, feedback. You know, can you get this band to come up here on Fridays to play our morning show? And then we'll give you an ad. And I didn't even know what an ad meant. Add me to a playlist. I thought it meant they would give us the commercial, like, you know, (laughs) new one, my records, Nerf Herder's album. I didn't even know what the fuck it was. And I called the guys and I'm like, dude, can you guys take off work? Um, If we drive up to San Francisco and play this place, they're going to like give us an ad for your record. And they're like, what's an ad? Like none of us knew. And we'd go up there, have the guys go up to the show and go up to the station and play. And the next thing you know, we're added to a, a fucking band from out of nowhere, from a label run out of a, like, you know, that in a house in a cul-de-sac in Santa Barbara is like on out of nowhere added to one of the most powerful stations. So suddenly, people are tracking me down, calling me up, going, "Who are you? What's going on? How do I get a copy of this record?" We didn't have enough money to like even send people things. So I was like, "Give me your FedEx account number, and I'll FedEx you a copy, but you first have to pay me ten dollars for it." I was selling record companies the record, you know, <laughs> I was like. They were like, we want 100 copies. I was like, okay, it's $10 each. And they're like, fine, what's your name? Who do I make the checkouts? You know, so it was like crazy. I get, We got put in a limousine and flown to fucking New York City to meet with Clive Davis, the fucking head of Arista Records. Clive Davis, who like discovered Whitney Houston and fucking, you know, everybody, right? Right, he's a legend. And like, right, a legend. And I'm, and I'm somehow like positioned as like their like representative. I'm like their manager and they're, you know, somehow I'm like, the, the point person for Nerf Herder, that is basically this song that's blowing up all over the country. I'm calling Joey in Europe going, dude, we have to fucking press up more copies. This is insane. He like takes a loan from his stepdad and like a thousand more copies. And it was like this crazy whirlwind. I mean, you could do a whole other show on that, but, but long story short, I forgot about that. There was fucking a label I had, and that's where I learned a lot too, that I applied later to Sugar Cult was like, oh, that's how the record industry functions. You know um you know. sometimes it's, i guess the moral of the story is like if you don't know what the hell you're doing and you just kind of go on instinct and just like go and figure and kind of like you know jump, subscribe to the like philosophy of jump and the net will appear you know you mm-hmm. just go for it and like trust your instincts and like next thing you know i'm like face to face with clive davis in a fucking office and the band's showcasing for him in new york city and we're getting wined and dined You know, they ended up getting like this huge fucking record deal. And so Nerf Herder's record. Then we signed another band called uh, Ride El High um, that were our friends and put their record out. And because everyone loved the story about Nerf Herder, all these labels started thinking, oh, they're going to be the next Nerf Herder. And so we ended up selling them off to AM Records. Then I start getting job offers from record companies like, dude, who are you? Why do you find all these fucking bands that, you know, can we hire you to work for us? And that's like when I had that freak out epiphany, like, Oh shit, I still want to be a musician. Um, I don't think I want to do, I don't want to be a label guy. And that's when I, you know, eventually, um, got into the Atari's and um, that, that picks up that rest of that story there. I kind of, that was me going back to like, I better fucking give this musician thing another shot before I, like I get a cushy job working at a record company. And then I grow up being the guy that like wished he would have, pursued his music career as in a band, you right? Know? So it was a really weird circuitous route to how it all worked out. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, back then I said, oh, well, I'll do the music career. And if that doesn't work, when it all fails or goes down in flames, then I'll go get a job as an AR person. Of course, now the record industry does, is like, you know, a total fucking chaos. So, <laughs> who knows,
0: um, so, who knows so- what the
2: future will bring so nerf Some herder, of the records oh. from the 90s from our, our hometown man Ride out high nerf herder summer camp summer camp toured with failure they opened for failure great fucking band yeah summer we, camp Look we up the record, them. pure juice by summer oh okay you did yeah oh my god that's amazing okay well the band i was in with the guy who was a junkie who died two weeks before our record came out the guitar player of that band was the singer of summer camp became the singer of summer camp so ah. all
0: these
2: stories are intertwined. We've all either played in bands together or slept with the same girls. It's a very small <laughs> town.
3: <laughs> so, uh, agree. Nerf Herder, Ride El High, or Lagwagon, which of those three should we review?
2: I would probably, well, I mean, Lagwagon's probably the biggest band, you know, like, the, you know, they're at this point, like legendary in that whole world of like no effects and bad religion. Right. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would, I don't. I think Nerf Herder are a really fun story, and and Perry is is a uh, you know Perry Grip, their singer, has actually be, kind of gotten a new life now as like a YouTube star because he makes these really funny songs. He's like little like he just does it sort of as a hobby, but now he's like somehow become like a millionaire from it. Is uh, he he'll, he'll like look at people's YouTube videos of like their like puppy doing something silly, and then he'll write a song about it, and then he'll post it, and it'll go viral and get like millions of views. Wow, And so he's actually become like yep. kind of a cult, like superstar in a really weird way. Um, and he's just a fascinating person, you know, um, cause he's never really tried to be successful. It's just kind of fallen in his lap. Like he, he formed Nerf Herder just for fun. So he could be in a band with his buddy Steve as sort of a hobby. And then the band got a quarter million dollar record deal with Arista records. And, you know, got to have fucking Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill in their video, you know, then they then Joss Whedon was just starting to show Buffy the Vampire Slayer and he became a huge Nerf Herder fan and he hired Nerf Herder to make the the theme song for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then they got royalties every time that show ever aired, you know, and then they kind of just stopped playing and Perry started just fucking around with his home computer recording equipment and he would do these weird like fictitious jingles and write songs about waffles and songs about beer and just kind of made a solo record just for fun and put it out just as a laugh with like 50 songs all of them less than a minute long about you know sports and waffles and beer and whatever and somehow that caught on and like he started getting hired by like hallmark and like now he works now he writes songs for a a disney show called 7d and he gets hired by like big companies to do music for their commercials. And then his music, his YouTube videos are all fucking viral and sharing, you know, untold amounts of money, you know, and, uh, and suddenly he's become like a YouTube sensation, you know? And, um, and now Nerf just made another record. So they're out there like doing some stuff again, but he's just always followed his news. Like that's one of the beautiful things about coming from a small town is you get people that might even be the secret. Like now that I'm saying it, talking about Santa Barbara, you get people that are doing it for the purest of reasons and they're not as like quote unquote cool as the people in the big city that are, that have figured out the formula, you know? So we're all kind of just like a little bit innocent and like figuring it out on our own and kind of stumbling on what we think is cool based on our own imagination versus like, coming down to la and being able to like get the playbook and figure out like all right here's where you got to go here's who you got to talk to here's how you got to behave here's what you got to wear here's how you got to sound here's how you got to do your hair you know it's like we had this like awkward kind of just like innocence that happens in santa barbara where you're just doing it just because and then you just get better at it and you like doing it and then if it takes off people don't know where the fuck it came from. They can't believe it happened because they're used to everything being so fucking contrived and people they're used to bands just trying so fucking hard. And the cool thing about being from Santa Barbara is people just didn't try that hard. Cause they figured if they were really serious, they would probably like already be in LA. So we might as well just mess around with our friends and have fun, you know? Sure. It's kind of weird. When you try too hard, shit doesn't work. <laughs>
3: you know, uh, Especially you in rock. Let it
2: be. It happens, spe- yeah. Maybe that's spe- maybe that's it. It's like it's fucking rock and roll. It's not supposed yeah. to be fucking, you know, science, you know. It's supposed to be
3: well,
1: you
2: know, kind of
3: well,
1: I mean not supposed to to, be uh, too seriously. To quote thirty eight special, you gotta hold on loosely. Uh, if you cling too <laughs> tightly you're gonna lose control. So I that's, love it. That's, <laughs> that's so <laughs> rad. That's that's the thirty eight special philosophy right there.
2: Wisdom. Wisdom yeah, <laughs> I just like you know, I already liked you guys to begin with, and now I'm just like, okay, that was so fucking cool. You closed me. You had me at the 38 special quote. Um, that's awesome, man. That's it's, so badass. Um, but it's it's true.
1: It's uh, it's getting late here, and I think what we should do is yeah, we yeah, should yeah. have you back on, and let's let pick we'll pick a record, whether it's a Nerf Herder record or, or something else, and we'll do actually do a record revisitation with you or we'll go back through a 90s record. It can be something that you're familiar with or something that you just love or that you just want to talk about because you think, hey, this didn't get enough, you know, love back in the 90s and I think people need to hear it and we'll go through a record. Um, you oh, that'd know, be fun. You, you might want to dig into it. We like to go, I mean, we have reviewed stuff that's been real obscure. I mean, stuff that like, you know, it got released on an indie label in Australia only and came out, uh, you know, the band existed for five months and, Blah, blah blah. I mean, we've got oh, those fuck. records, so if you want to go obscure, we we can okay. handle it. It doesn't have to be. Uh... <laughs> I <laughs> All mean, right.
2: that sounds like fun.
3: We like to oh, mix dude. it up and and do a Van Halen episode every now and then, oh, but that's you know, true. yeah, right,
2: right to, to
3: balance right. things out. But yes, right. we will go ob- as obscure as 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 we feel is necessary.
2: Yes, exactly. Well, as long as we're gonna do like the Van, you know, we can do the Gary Sharon <laughs> uh, Van Halen episode. I don't know if you guys oh. have done that, but that oh, yeah. Done. oh yeah, oh yeah right
3: we did a round table did. on on 90s van halen and i think it was two hours long
2: yeah oh, that's awesome
3: we had greg okay. Renoff on who wrote the the new van halen book and yeah we we went deep on gary
2: oh yeah <laughs> oh that's fucking awesome that's so rad i gotta listen to that um and you know i don't know man i mean like yeah dude there's so much great shit from the 90s i mean going back to super drag the muffs um so many great bands but then you know getting obscure there's so much cool shit. You just, I wouldn't even know where to start, but I could go back and like flip through some of my records and, and, you know, probably narrow it down to at least like five. And then you guys can choose (laughs) what you want, you know? Sounds Sounds good. Um, But uh, yeah. Anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for, for taking the time. And I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully it didn't fucking, hopefully wasn't too like ADD all over the place, but uh, this is how we
1: like to do it. We, you know, sometimes we have, an agenda because there's like a new record that's coming out and you want to like hit all that kind of stuff. But this is a little bit more open-ended. So we kind of like just let it go where it, where it goes and and don't worry about cool. like trying to hit uh, you know, particular promotional, you know, points and, and stuff.
0: Well,
3: so it, it, we're building a nice little oral history with all the, a lot of the interviews we've done where you, you kind of get everybody's 90s story and, and it's interesting yeah. what things align and what things are different and what's the same. And, so no, it's yeah I, I think it's cool but i
2: mean they're they're really well i'm glad that that's the, the idea because like i really did like you know usually when i'm doing interviews about sugar call it's like i've learned to just like okay i'm not gonna steer back to the 90s because it's so confusing it's like within you know from the year 91 to the year 99 i went from like i, I was in so many fucking bands so many different I, I was i was either marco from popsico or marco from my records or marco from the Ataris. Or, you know, Marco, who worked at the record store, or Marco, who did the radio show, you know, like so many fucking identities that I was like kind of like a fucking uh, walking identity crisis, you know, mm-hmm. until I finally just went, all right, I'm doing Sugar Cult, fuck it. But I still also have a side project band with Joey Cape from Lagwagon called Bad Astronaut. We made a couple records too. But luckily for you guys, they all came out in the 2000s. So <laughs> <we still don't laughs> yeah but i may send you guys a copy of popsico off to a bad start because i still think of all the bands i've ever been in Sugar Crawl included that that was the one of the probably the best record i ever was a part of you know that was the band where our singer unfortunately became a drug addict and died in a car crash um that record was like the one that got away that was like the, the first you know the you know that's the one that got away that's the one that should have been and oddly enough the last song on that record is called two would have been could have been should have been so yeah nice Um, well maybe that would be the record we talked about that could be kind of cool because no one really knows about that record and there's roots of you know sugar Cult. there's roots of of summer camp um and just actually roots of pennywise because our singer keith grew up in manhattan beach and was the original singer of pennywise when they were just starting out he was like a freshman and they were all seniors so, that could be a good story.
3: Nice.
1: Yeah. Crazy. I want to uh so, let everybody I want to let everybody who knew, who's listening, they can follow you on Twitter at sugarcultmarco and they should definitely go to the sweetrelief.org website to check out the upcoming show and if they don't live in uh the area where they can actually go to the show, you can also donate to the cause via their website and um do you have a uh, uh a, an insta as the kids say
2: yeah i'm pretty active on instagram i really i really enjoy instagram um it's mark It's my name marco desantis and marco is spelled m-a-r-k-o um and if you're still listening now you probably already follow me <laughs> you're probably just to unfollow me because you're like okay I, I never need to hear another fucking thing out of that guy's mouth after this long Fucking thing, but you know, if you're still listening now, thank you. But please uh, follow me on Sugarcult Marco. So Sugar Sugarcult S U G A R C U L T M A R K O. That's my Twitter handle. But more important is Instagram. and That's just Marco Desantis. And I'm sure you're gonna have that like on the thing people are looking at when they click on this. So absolutely, that's, you know. And, and um, don't fret and that's, because uh, that's probably uh,
1: good. Don't fret. Kelly Scott has has at least an hour on you. For uh Ooh, a single episode. Wow. So uh okay. we try, we try wow. not to go that long anymore because even uh you, now know, you got like
2: see I'm like competitive now. I'm like I can't let the drummer talk long I can't let the drummer guy talk longer than the fucking Italian guitar player guy. I'm the one who's supposed to fucking talk too much. All right. Yeah. yeah I- Okay. I did notice on your Wikipedia
1: right. that it, it at the bottom it gives you like the generic like, you know, um, categories that people are assigned to. And it says like for you, it says American punk rock guitarists and then guitarists oh, from wow. California. And then it says American people of Italian descent. And I was like, well, that's oh, nice. a lot of people. I mean, <laughs> oh,
2: I thought I thought you were going to say like American punk rock guitar players that never shut the fuck up, <laughs> you know, like that's a category
3: <laughs> editing Wikipedia right
2: now. But apparently <laughs> I, that doesn't uh, come close to uh, American, um, you know, uh, alternative rock drummers that never shut the fuck up. So he's got me beat. All right, Kelly, keep working. <sighs> well, All Kelly right. probably drinks more coffee than me. All right. Well, cool, man. Well, that was good. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really cool. And I, I, I uh, appreciate you guys providing a forum for this kind of stuff because it really is a cool um, unsung history that a lot of people don't know about, you know. So many things happened in the 90s that rose above the mainstream, you know, that got on the radar of the mainstream. But for every one of those things, there was like a hundred things that should have but never but just missed the mark or the person from the record company, you know, dropped the ball or whatever, One day, I'm going to put you in touch with a guy named Justin who had a band called Shuffle Puck who made an amazing record. And um, he moved out to LA with Rivers from Weezer and with a guy named Kevin Rydell who ended up forming Rydell High. So, one guy formed Weezer, one guy formed Rydell High, the other guy formed Shuffle Puck. Shuffle Puck made an incredible record for Interscope. It got shelved and it never came out. Uh You can probably Google Shuffle Puck, where the hell is she? And it's like, you're going to be like, there's a lost 90s gem right there you know um so there was a band there was a metal band from from connecticut called avant-garde and they moved out to hollywood to make it big and they all had huge hair and and huge um you know metal guitars and their lead guitar player was a guy named rivers cuomo their lead singer was a guy named kevin right and their bass player was a guy named justin fisher they all got out here but they got here and they realized they looked around they're like oh my god hair metal is over and we've Here we are, like, (laughs) with our like metal stances, and we look like we're in keel, and no one cares anymore. Like everyone had moved on to like, the Chili Peppers and Rage Against the Machine and Jane's Addiction, and so they all like eventually like cut their hair off and started their own bands and listened to the Pixies and voila, like literally the first batch of songs Rivers ever wrote that were non-metal songs, and the first time he ever tried singing was that Blue Album by Weezer. Isn't that incredible? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a whole other conversation. That we'll is, talk about Shufflepucks record. That,
0: that would be, be a good
1: one. That's that's right up our alley in terms of, of the obscure stuff. So yeah, that'd be a good one yeah.
0: too.
2: So, all right, yeah, We can keep going forever. Let's uh, let's talk again. And, um, Absolutely. You know, feel free to edit, edit liberally if you want to <laughs> and um, send me a link when you're done. It's my birthday, May 3rd. So try to get this thing out by my by uh, by May third. Well, this will be up next Tuesday. So
0: yeah,
1: I think that might be uh, the day before if my calendar will come up on my phone. Uh, Yeah, it'll be up next Tuesday, so it'll be the day before your birthday.
2: So right now, that way I can guilt trip everybody. Like, hey, if you for my birthday, you got to listen to this podcast. (laughs) You got to like go on a four-hour drive first. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I'll take care of you guys. I'll talk All right. to you another time. All Thanks, right, Margo.
1: Talk to you later. later.
0: All, right. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.